episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Euronation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We honour their histories, cultures and traditions of storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plated 3 Food Memories. I'm your host, Savas Savas. For a quarter of a century, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences for some of Australia's most extravagant and intimate soirees. Food connects us. It connects us to people, to places and to moments in time. These memories shape who we are and what we value. So come and break bread with my guests and I as they share their food memories, revealing far more about themselves than what they've tasted. My guest in this episode of Plated is a worldwide best-selling author published in 18 languages and has been a writer in residence at the Savoy Hotel London where she has her own cocktail named after her. And although you might not have been lucky enough to taste the Cathy Cassis, you're probably familiar with some of her famous quotes from her first ever book which was made into a movie and more recently a miniseries. Uh, Debbie, uh, you're dropped. What? Straight reckons that Bruce told him that you're dropped. Oh, what a weak act. Yeah, and she was really good to him too. What a turd. Classic Australian literature it is. And since Cathy Lett co-authored Puberty Blues when she was just 17 years old, she's been a campaigner for feminism and has been writing quasi-textbooks to help navigate the folly of men ever since. Cathy Lett is back in Australia, or Ozcatraz as she's been calling it, to spend time with her family and launch her 17th novel, Till Death or a Little Light Maiming Do Us Part. Darling, thank you for having me in your home. Well, you know I adore you. I'm hoping I can convert you today. (laughs) It's my plan. (laughs) I, I I love the way you tell the story of how we met. Why don't you do it again? Oh, well, it was just brilliant because I hate cooking. I'm totally allergic to the kitchen. I use my smoke alarm as a timer, which I've often said, but is so true. So I happened to have some friends out from England, Grace and Perry, the artist, and some other wonderful people coming for dinner. I thought, oh, good God, I'm going to go down for manslaughter if I try and cook for them. So I asked friends for, for top tips on the best chefs in Sydney And your name came up, you know, you were the first name I was given by so many people. But I rang a few people before you. But then as soon as I rang you to say, would you come and cook for me? Well, we never stopped talking. I think we talked for about the length it would take to have cooked the entire meal. (laughs) (laughs) And then you did the most brilliant thing where you just said, look, why don't I just come over and and just cook it for you? And I said, yes, and just stay for dinner. And you said, yes, and of course I won't charge you because it's just too much fun. (laughs) So... You came over, we bonded. It was a brilliant dinner. There were about, I don't know, were about 12 people, 12 including people. Tom Keneally and Cressida Campbell and Grayson Perry, and I can't remember all the others. But it was, it was, the human menu was dazzling, but not as delicious as the culinary creation that you concocted. And it, and it was just the most brilliant evening. We've been great friends since then. I mean, what a fantastic way to meet. What a fantastic way to meet, indeed. So to quote you, I love entertaining, I hate cooking, 
I use my smoke alarm as a timer. If you're burning the buggery out of toast, who is providing the sustenance for you to live? <laughs> well, I would just say to all the women listening, you can have a second act. You know, I think for women, life is in two acts. The trick is surviving the interval, which is the menopause. On the other side of the menopause, that's the time to just change your life, go for what you want, um, find a man who'll adore you, not bore you, and do all your chores for you. And I was lucky enough to find my beautiful Brian, who's a composer, a classical guitarist, digital dexterity, need I say more, but he's also a fantastic <laughs> cook. And he learned to cook because when he was a music student in London, you know, when he was at the Royal Academy of Music, but he was he was busking in restaurants, not busking, but playing in restaurants to earn money, the chefs used to take him down to the kitchen and they loved him so much they would not just cook for him, but they taught him to cook. So he just learned by being in the kitchens of, of London. And he's a fantastic chef and he just does everything for me. <laughs> The way to a woman's heart is through her stomach. That is not aiming too hard. <laughs> well, I walked in this morning and I just noticed he'd cooked you some beautiful fluffy scrambled eggs. The fluffiest scrambled eggs. I think he's an egg whisperer. <laughs> I think he, he just taught, he must read them, you know, Gallic poetry or something. But it's beautiful eggs. And, of course, he does my fruit and my coffee. And I get breakfast in bed every day. What does a woman really want in bed? Breakfast. And <laughs> A really good book, obviously, hopefully one of mine. <laughs> a lot of women stay in a marriage that's run its course out of duty, um, but all the research shows that the majority of divorces now are initiated by women and the two peak times are when the last child finishes school or when the husband retires because um, women just think, you know, really? I mean, from honeymoon to tomb can last so long now. It can be, I don't know, 60, 70 years. And that's a long time for someone to find your anecdotes interesting. <laughs> um, but women, because we're brought up to be good and we're brought up to be sort of put ourselves last, sometimes women put up with um, an unhappy situation. And I would say to them, don't. You know, divorce is not a failure. It's just a change. And there is love and laughter and adventure out there. Adventure before dementia is my motto. Carpe the hell out of diem. If not now, when? So that's what I would say, go for it. And that's what my, my new book, which you mentioned earlier, Till Death or Little Light Maiming, Do Us Part, is about that. How long did it take you to write the book? It takes me about two years, but that's because I have a lot of fun <laughs> in between. I do go out every night swinging off a chandelier with a cocktail between my teeth. <laughs> so, yeah, it takes me about two years. To write, the, to write a book. Yeah, and unfortunately there's no... Um, there's no creative epidural. <laughs> you know, the birth pains are just as bad with every single book. And I'm inventing a new genre now, I think, because I kind of invented, in a way, chick lit. I hate that term. I mean, I, I, I hate that because people who write first... Per men who write first-person funny contemporary fiction like Nick Hornby, et cetera, David, um, and David Mitchell, they get compared to Chekhov. They're Chekhovian and we're Chikovian. You know, we get called chiclet with a pink cover with a cupcake on it. You know, I hate that. But I think all those books like Girls' Night Out, um, or Puberty Blues, Girls' Night Out, uh, Fetal Attraction, Mad Cows, Llama Parlor, all those early books I wrote were kick-started that genre of chiclet. And then, of course, I did with Fetal, with Mad Cows and Fetal Attraction. That was kind of the kick-starting of Mummy Lit. And then I did Nip and Tuck, which is all Nip Lit. So my new genre, I want to call it I don't give a shit lit for women my age who no longer care what people think about them 
and just want to go out there and be fun and feisty and fabulous. Because most women my age in novels, when they're depicted, uh, they usually die of loneliness and they get eaten by their cats like Anita Bruckner characters. But all the women I know my age are fabulous. You know, you know them too. Mm-hmm. They, and there's a, there's a feeling too that women don't come into their true selves until the post-menopause. Because, of course, what happens with the menopause is that your estrogen goes down and your testosterone comes up. So that caring, sharing hormone, that sort of dissipates and you get a little bit more bolshy, a little bit more strident, a little bit more selfish, a little bit more like a bloke actually, um, where you can, you, you can just be yourself. You don't no longer have to be decorative or demure. You're no longer in the male gaze because our whole lives as women, we're being judged on how we look. But once, you know, men, so, so many men deem us to be, have been put out to sexual pasture, which is so wrong. We're definitely in our sexual prime. I'm not 60. I'm sexy, baby. Um, but it does liberate you. So I want to see those women depicted in fiction. So in my books, the women my age are the protagonists. They lead the story. They propel the plot. They have a lot of fun and frivolity and toy boys and alcohol and laughter en route. But also they've, they've lived. You know, they've had the heartache. They've had the marriages. They've had the divorces. They've had the, you know, the looking after the aged parents. These are women who are wise. And that's what I like to draw on in my prose now. I'm ready to let us into your smorgasbord of of food memories. Okay. Let's start with your first one. So my first food memory, it's not actually my first one, but the one that kind of leaps nauseatingly to mind is when I moved to Britain in 1988. I fell in love with Geoffrey Robertson. Mind you, he was going out with Nigella Lawson at the time. He broke up with her for me, which is he truly regretted later. <laughs> you know, as we were looking at each other over a bowl of baked beans, I could see him thinking, oops, I made a terrible mistake. Um, but I was so shocked when I moved there because at the time, British food was so terrible. I mean, in Australia, we, we invented Asian fusion. Everywhere you went, every restaurant, you couldn't get a bad meal. You know, it was inventive, it was it was exciting, it was great ingredients and it was using all kinds of different cultural influences to, to come up with new ideas. Over there it was stodgy beef, overboiled vegetables, things like jellied eels. These are people who took jelly and eels and put them together. I mean, my tonsils were no longer on speaking terms with my, with my stomach. They were like, no. Um, and that was really shocking. And I did a cooking course, actually, even though I hate cooking. I went to the Prue-Leith cooking school for a week. Um, but actually, <laughs> all I learned there was how to overboil more vegetables and how to, you know. <laughs> but I did get a lot of material about the, 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 about the women there and the class system, which I used in fetal attraction, which was my satire on Australian going to Britain. Because, you know, I, I cannibalise my own life. But I did learn a great tip. Um, I would always ask interesting people, because I think also discourse is just as important as, as the, the courses that you're serving. Like the human menu is really important at a party. So I, I'd just give them a lot of good champagne. I'd fill the, f- fill the fridge up with great ingredients. And then um, at some stage of the night, I'd say, I suppose we should eat something. And I'd open the fridge door and gaze in, you know, seeing, well, what have we got? And it was, there's always some blokes there who are recently divorced, keen to show their culinary skills. So within about 
five minutes, men come over and look rummage through going, oh, oh, what have you got? And I pretend to help for like five minutes and then gradually just step back and just <laughs> let them, a retreat, and I just let them do all the cooking. So that, that's, that's the top um, food tip I learnt in London is just get a few divorced blokes over, fill the fridge up and get everybody a bit pissed first. But I, I must say one good thing that happened to me in Britain food-wise is that I was living in the, in the Savoy Hotel and I'm still there like ambassador. I've got my own table in the bar, I've got my own table in the restaurant, which is great. Um, but I've, I've also got... Um, I'm on the menu. I'm Cathy Omelette. I know, with my name. How could you go wrong? It's a fabulous omelette with lobster in it, you know, for, to get the Australian seafood sort of flavour. Um, and what also, do you cost... Oh, I, I never paid. <laughs> and, and I've got this, my other great thing there, I've got my own cocktail, Cathy Cassis. And we put a lot of research into that, let me tell you. <laughs> and it's, a, you know, it's Cassis and champagne and some strawberries and stuff. But I remember I took a really famous but, but quite proper English writer, Julian Barnes. Have you heard of him? Yes, yes. I took him there to have cocktails one night and we ordered the Cathy Cassises. And I said, I'm, I'm really pleased that I've got a cocktail named after me, but I'm quite worried about all the men who can go around town now saying that they've had me. And he said... Don't worry, Kathy, darling, as long as they say you went down rather well. And I was like, wow, from Julian, that was so risque, I couldn't believe it. And, uh, and we've had a lot of fun in that bar. I mean, I often take my girlfriends there, my comedy friends. Like I'd say, I'd take Sandy Toxvig and Joe Brand and Ruby Wax and we'll be drinking Kathy Cassises. And one night Tom Jones walked in. And we'd drunk so many Kathy Cassises, we thought it might be f- quite funny to throw our underpants at him. But, of course, I won't tell you which girl got her pants off first, but as these underpants were arcing across the bar, I suddenly realised they weren't like a little lacy G-string. They were these huge pants. <laughs> like They looked like the spinnaker of a yacht, you know. And suddenly Tom Jones is, like, asphyxiating. He can't breathe. He's like, oh, they're getting the defibrillators out. <laughs> and then he turned around quite, quite cross to see what it, who'd done this terrible thing. <laughs> then he saw it was us and he just burst out laughing and he sang us What's New Pussycat. <laughs> Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> so, yeah, I have had a lot of fun there drinking Cathy Cassis's in the Savoy Bar. <laughs> Let's move on to your second memory. Now, this is a really beautiful one. Mum. Oh, my darling mum. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have the most fabulous mum. And the, she gave me the best gift imaginable, which is three sassy and sensational sisters. And we're really, really close. Um, sadly, my dad died about... He died about 10 years ago. His name was Mervyn. He worked in optic fibre. We called him Optic Merv. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he was a famous footballer. He played for um, the Bulldogs. He was a front-row forward. He was actually the fastest front-row forward in Australian history at, at the time. Um, and he, he won... He did had a running race at the Sydney Showground and won 100 quid, which was the down payment for their block of land down in the Shire. Um, but these... My mum... Well, she's wonderful in so many ways, but she's formidable because she had a career at the time when, when women didn't. Out of all my friends at, at school, she was the only mother who worked. Um, and she was, a, had a, she was a teacher, but she very quickly accelerated to become a, um, a principal because she's just such a great teacher. She, it's a real vocation for her. And she taught us to be independent women. And my, my dad always says he wished he'd had four sons because he wanted a whole football team. But also, by the end of his life, he was so grateful that he had daughters because, of course, girls stay with the family, whereas boys tend to go off 
with their their female partner's family, but girls really like we 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 just he was just cocooned in love, um, and my mother well. You know, you've got to remember what, what it was like back then in, in the 1960s and 70s where women were second-class citizens. You know, she didn't even have equal pay as a teacher. Uh, and even when they fought and fought to get equal pay, the only reason the men got paid more was because they lit the incinerator. That was the only other job they did that the women didn't. So the, mum was one of the teachers who went on strike to get equal pay. But even when they were finally granted equal pay, it came in incrementally. Incrementally, it didn't. They didn't just give immediately readjust the inequality. But she um, tells me now that you know the most difficult time of her life really was when Puberty Blues came out, because um, she didn't tell me at the time, but she got a lot of hate mail and she got a lot of calls from people saying call yourself a teacher when you've raised a slut like that because you know women weren't allowed to talk about sex the terms for um, a man who was sexually active were love god you know lothario romeo spunk rat a woman with the same sexual appetites was a slut a tart a tramp a mole you know, and I joke about it now saying how the men expect you to be so virginal. It's like when they say to you, oh, darling, darling, am I the first man to make love to you? And we reply, oh, yes, I don't know why you men keep asking the same silly question. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a truth underlying that joke in that, that it was just, it was so, so hypocritical, the attitude to sexuality. So when I wrote Puberty Blues with my girlfriend and we were honest about what girls were going through in the back of panel vans and this brutal initiation into the surfy culture and the and the oh, the gross misogyny that we were enduring it was shocking parents had no idea i mean two copies of that book were sold in every house the kids were re under the bedspread with a torch reading it madly going oh my god that's our life what did kylie minogue say about it that she yeah. was she just didn't read it she devoured, devoured it. it she did behind yeah. closed doors <laughs> and when i met kylie in london you know 30 years ago of course she's so fabulous and so famous and just so dazzling but we were at a party somewhere and everyone was in awed orbit around kylie because she's she's a goddess but kylie went cat puberty blue she said rackle fish face mole you know and she rushed over to me and hugged me and we just became firm friends and Danny too Danny was there as well you know the three of us are really good friends because they grew up reading that book under the bedspread with a torch but of course the, all the parents in every Australian family were upstairs reading it going oh my god is that what my kids are doing because the generation gap at the time was Grand Canyon-esque you know now as parents there's nothing your sons will do that you won't have done you know. mm, well, I hope they don't do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they don't go anywhere near <laughs> what I've done. <laughs> but, you know, in those days, no, it was a massive, massive generation gap. So that, and that's, that's what just shocked the nation. But I'm really proud of that little book that, you know, that's done, it's punched way above its weight. It's still a kind of a cult classic. It's like straight Vegemite with no bread and butter. It's just so astringent and so dry. Did mum know you were writing? Did mum, dad, sisters know you were writing this book? <laughs> I remember I said to mum, "You know, mum, I'm 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 writing a book," and she was. I said, "Do you want me to use a non de plume?" And I had a really good non de plume. I was going to use Sue D 
de Nim. <laughs> Susan de Nim. <laughs> I remember her saying, she tells me now that she was just like, she thought, oh, as if anyone's going to ever going to publish a book with Kathy Rice. <laughs> so she said, no, of course not, whatever, like, you know, laughing behind her hand. And then, of course, when the book came out and she was getting all this hate mail, I think she really wished I had written it under <laughs> Sue Denim. <laughs> but it was lovely of her not to tell me that at the time because that would have really broken me because it was already quite traumatic because there was a lot of, you know, attack in the media too about that we were leading the youth of Australia astray and and that we were sluttons. I mean, the terms they used to use. But there was there were other voices going, this is a feminist track, this is so important. Did you Did you write the book... Gunning to discuss feminist issues. No, I no. mean we wrote it really for. Um, I wanted to just get it, the message across to my surfy girlfriends that there were more than just a life support system to repair breasts. You know, right. they weren't just. A, so you were writing for your for com- that community for those surfy girls yeah. that I who with whom I you know who who I grew up with, and had no idea it was going to be so big. To, and to go from non-entity to overnight notoriety was it literally overnight. Oh, overnight. Like boom. Yeah. Like, and it was quite a roller coaster ride. So it was very unusual to have a working mother at the time. Uh, Australia was an incredibly sexist place, so she was like she was rare. I mean, she was like a, the rare spotted, multi-winged butterfly from the Amazon or something. But the downside of having a working mum is that uh, you know it wasn't what you'd call a gastronomic delight in the home. <laughs> Most nights we had chops. Uh, we had mashed potato and peas. <laughs> Most Australian households at right. the time, right? Or we had, my, or sometimes we had, we'd, we'd go crazy and have fish fingers, <laughs> like really lash out. But Saturdays and Sundays was a different thing because on Saturdays she would make her special cupcakes that had she'd make the cupcake, cut the top off, then put the whipped, I guess, is it whipped icing sugar or something? I mean, whipped cream, whipped was cream, cream but it's really it? sweet. Right, and then and then you put she put the back top of the cupcake back on like a little beret, and then she'd sprinkle white icing sugar over the whole thing, and they were delicious straight out of the oven, really warm cupcakes with the cream melting in. And this was a tradition every Saturday. She'd make these cupcakes, and we'd and all the girls, the three sisters, dad, we'd all hover around and have just we ate as many as we wanted until we burst. And it was the time we sat and talked as a family because nobody was rushed. Because normally after school every day we had sports and then we got back and then we, you know how crazy it is. It's like a maternal, you know, decathlon, maternal marathon. Um, but weekends we could we could talk and laugh and my family's very funny. You know, it's very, humour is our, is our default setting. <laughs> so the banter, it was always like being... At the, like the Wimbledon of wit with one-liners bouncing back and forth and a lot of um, frivolity and fun and teasing, a lot of teasing. And we still, we're still like that. Uh, and my, my sisters do like to cook they're, and, they're, and, they're, and they're quite good cooks. You know, they do a lot of Asian stuff. But when we go away, we go away every year together as a family. We rent three houses down the coast and the whole clan come. We've all got two kids. There's three, so there's four daughters. We've got two kids each and partners and we all go down the coast to Borley Point and Keola, you know, and we, we just put out, we don't take our board shorts off for the whole week and we boogie board for hours a day. And then we go up and barbecue with the kangaroos hopping around, you know. And the boys have always done the barbecuing, but this year we decided that was really sexist. So this year we the, the girls manned the tongs. 
<laughs> that was a real, that was a tribal moment, you know. But I realised why men like barbecuing Australian blokes because you're standing at the barbecue, they're side by side, so they can talk without eye contact, and they can kind of um, they can sort of get a camaraderie going without it being too confronting. I think it's probably their version of the confessional now that nobody goes to church anymore. <laughs> is when male bonding at the barbecue. but So we did it this year. And what number are you in the sister chain? So my older sister is the grown-up. She was a police psychologist. Uh, then there's me. I used to be the black sheep, now I'm just beige. <laughs> and then there's my next sister down who's in marketing. She's really clever and really funny. And then my little sister is a naturopath. Um, and when we get together, we, we just we, we dance badly to ABBA. We often get um, ABBA-related dance injuries where we can't walk for days afterwards. I'm going to post a photo of all four sisters <laughs> and mum together and there's something that you do that's very unique and it's called the Letty... Let leg. The let leg, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> We've got this stupid habit of all posing with one leg slightly, slightly sort of curled and, and poised because we think it's flattering. <laughs> it just looks really stupid. And when we get drunk, we do extreme let leg, where we wrap our legs around each other. But, yeah. It's, um, it's a quite a unique relationship, isn't it? Well, can I just say, I, my, my, one of my philosophies in, in life is that women are each other's human wonder bras, uplifting, supportive, and making each other look bigger and better. <laughs> and I think I am part of the reason I'm such a, a passionate defender of women and such a campaigner for feminism is because I grew up in this family, female-friendly household where my sisters are my human wonder bras. We support each other constantly. And, and I also think Australian women are the world's best-kept secret. Funny, feisty, frank, fiercely loyal. I get a sense that it was your mother who encouraged this. Totally. She encouraged you to get on with life, not being beholden to men. That's right. Uh, I think what we learned from mum is that you never wait to be rescued by some knight in shining Armani. You stand (laughs) on your own two thongs. And, And so none of us changed our names when we got married. We're all career women. And we've also instilled that in our own daughters. But she did it. With, I would say she would have done it without any song and dance. There wouldn't have been a public statement. It would have just been very subliminal. Yes. Messaging, girls, this is how we do it. Yeah, and we just watched her. Yeah. And wow. she was Toastmistress of Australia. You know, she did. She was nervous of public speaking, so she joined Toastmistress and became the champion. You know, she was supposed to go to America and compete on the world stage representing Australia, but, of course, she couldn't go she had four daughters. You know, she was... Like all mothers, all working mothers, she juggled so much she could be in the Cirque du Soleil, but she made it work. Um, so, yes, yeah, she's a fantastic role model. I can remember now when she read Jermaine Greer that that was a life-changing book for her because it put into words what she was thinking but hadn't necessarily said out loud. And she tells me now there were many dinner parties she'd be at um, you know, in the Shire in the 70s where men would be slagging off Jermaine Greer and she would defend her and she'd say, have you actually read the book? Of course they hadn't. I mean, Jermaine was a front-row forward feminist. She went out there and did some ball-kicking and, and, you know, we needed it. We still don't have equal pay. We're still getting 75 cents in the dollar. You know, we're still hitting our head on the glass ceiling, you know, getting concussion that way and we're supposed to clean it while we're up there. And until we break that second glass ceiling at home, well, and I've broken it, I've got a, a beautiful nurturing boyfriend now. And I would say that to young women too, when you're choosing your life partner, if you're, a very, if you're alpha and you're quite driven, don't go for an alpha man. 
You want to go for a beta male who's nurturing and sharing and caring, who'll put you on a pedestal and who'll do, who'll do just, even just do equal housework. I'm actually taking that, I'm taking that advice on myself. What, did, what um, Kathy? what advice would you, would you give to young men then? To young men, I would say, well, I think young men are much improved because they've been raised by feminists. You know, I would say, first of all, learn to cook. There is nothing sexier than a man in a cooking apron, really. And also, um, you know, I think if you learn to do sensitive thing with snow peas in the kitchen, (laughs) that really is foreplay for females, (laughs) without a doubt. But I I would also say, you know, be... (laughs) Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yes, me. Yes, I'm all over the pea. (laughs) (laughs) That's watching your peas and cues for sure. But I would also say, you know, talk. I mean, women often complain that our small intestines communicate with us more often than our partners. You know, be emotionally articulate. That's also a great turn on. And and just do half the housework, which is also in your interest because it's scientifically proven that no woman ever shot her partner while he was vacuuming. (laughs) Okay, Ooh, we could go on and we on and on. We could go on. <laughs> but I want to go on to your last food memory. Last food memory. Well, I suppose I, I have to mention the Chico roll. It's iconic. It's ironic and iconic. <laughs> because in Puberty Blues, the key moment of the book is when, you know, as surfy girls, we weren't allowed to surf. We had to sit on the beach. We had to mine the towel, massage the male ego and fetch the Chico roll. And there's a line in the book where one of the surfy boys says to the, the girls, go, go get me a Chico roll and don't take a bite out of it. You're dropped. So we'd trek all the way down the beach to get this Chico roll, which is pretty underwhelming gastronomically, really, but it was hot. What was... What was it's what, kind of cabbage, cabbage. And, and... Onion? And, and some jism, I think. <laughs> I think it was cabbage, onion and jism in a pastry kind of casing. Deep fried. <laughs> Deep fried. And then popped into the envelope. That in, popped into the envelope. And then we'd have to run back up the beach with the milkshake and the Chico roll without taking a bite That of actually it. happened, Cathy. That was that. Oh, yeah. And because we girls also weren't allowed to eat, surfy girls, skinniness was inniness. Like you could see the three-course raisin we'd had for lunch. I don't know where we kept our internal organs. They must have been in our handbags because they weren't in our bodies. <laughs> so we were really starving, but you weren't allowed to take a sip of the milkshake or bite the Chico roll. And one day we, we took a bite from the Chico roll and that was just, oh, we were cast off into social Siberia after that. So, And it's funny that that's become an iconic phrase because I'll be walking around London, because Puberty Blues is such a cult book, I'll be walking around London and some Aussie kids will see me at Piccadilly Circus and they'll call out across the road... Hey, Kath, go get me a Chico roll. Don't take a bite out of it. You're dropped. <laughs> so the Chico roll is sadly, will forever be part of my gastronomic, you know, memories. How does it make you feel sort of, what is it, 40 years, 42 yeah, years Yeah, it's 40 something 40, years. And it's yeah. still there. Like something that you kind of just wrote with a girlfriend is yeah. still alive and kicking. How does it, it make you feel? Fabulous. I mean, I think it's a really important feminist book. And, and what I also love about the book is that what um, saves the two protagonists, female protagonists, is their friendship. And that's, that's, I've carried that through in all my novels. In all my novels, it's female friendship that saves the day. At what point did you realise that the chauvinism in the microcosm of the Shire was actually endemic in the outside world? At what point did you realise? 
Well, and especially in Australia. I mean, uh, well, I think going into the job market, you know, I remember I, I already had a book out and I already had a, um, a column in the newspaper, but then I was offered a job on an Australian television show and I went for my interview. This is what my interview was like. I had five very powerful, well-known men. I could name them, but I won't. Oh, I'd love it. No. Oh, I can't. We may, we may be sued. You never know. We'd be cancelled. Yeah, cancelled. There's these five big blokes, and I'm sitting, I'm 20, and I'm sitting, or 21 maybe, I'm sitting opposite them, and one of them slapped $10 on the table and said, I bet I can make your tits move without touching them. And I went, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. He leant over, mauled my breasts, and then said, ha-ha, you won, there's the $10. So I said immediately, not being green, I bet you 20 bucks I can make your balls move without touching them, and I kicked him between the legs. So uh, the other guys are hysterical with laughter. He's rolling around in pain. I got the job. But can you imagine, in today's, today's world, you could have a sexual harassment suit, but in those days, women just had to strap on a bulletproof bra and go out there into the world and cope with that stuff. It turned me into a bit of a barroom brawler, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If if and living in England, you know, of course England is just Britain is just as misogynistic. It's it's just a little bit more hidden. Um, and I, in some ways, I preferred to to be in Australia where the battle lines are drawn. You can see the enemy. I mean, I love Grace Tame taking on the patriarchy in that brilliant way and taking no prisoners. And I think after the Me Too movement, I think those top-order predators have kind of slithered under the rock. They're still there, but they're just having to lie low for now. And I always think, you know how you have a guest edit of a magazine? Yes. I think we should have a guest edit of The Globe where we just say to the men, why don't you just step back? Step, just give us six months. Let's just see what we can do. A great example of what women can do is in Iceland. I know it's a small country. It's only got 500,000 people. I was there recently. Um, when the women realised they didn't have equal pay and that nothing was changing, I mean, they'd known that, and that it kept being promised equal pay. It never happened. They went on strike. Every woman in Iceland stayed in bed. So the teachers, the doctors, the nurses, also the mums just didn't take their kids to school and they got equal pay passed in Parliament the next day. That that's what we should do. National strike. Women just, I don't give a shit lit. Stay at home, read a book, do your nails and um, stick two fingers up to the patriarchy. I'd like to move on to your social cause. Mm. Okay, well, of course, every feminist cause <laughs> I'd like to support. But I also, the one that's something that's very close to my heart and yours too... Because I don't know if you've talked about it in public. Not yet. But we share something. Do you mind if I talk about it? Absolutely not. We share, um, the, well, what we share is that we both are parenting an autistic son. Uh, and I'm much further down the track than you are because yeah. my son's 31. <laughs> and mine's seven. And you have a very bumpy road ahead of you. <laughs> Fasten your psychological seatbelt. <laughs> But at least you have me there to I, advise you or help you whenever I can. When Leo was diagnosed with his autism, you sent me the boy who fell to earth and inside you wrote this beautiful dedication. You said, to dear Sava, you deserve a medal. Yeah. And every day when it gets hard, I open that book and I read it and I think, yeah, I do. Parenting medal. Yeah. Get me through this day. It's so hard. It is. You can't. Why pretend it's not? I mean, for anyone listening who's not sure what autism is, it's a lifelong neurological condition. Its chief characteristics are an inability to communicate, socialise, 
often chronic OCD and anxiety. And um, there's no parenting manual. I mean, I used to think about Jules that I hadn't given birth to him, but I'd found him under a spaceship and I was kind of raising him as my own. <laughs> Do you feel like that sometimes? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's no advice. You're just making it up as you go along. Well, I think what you do is you, you, you think you're doing a really good job and you're on top of it, but you've got to give so much of yourself mm. so they can get through that you, there really isn't anything left. Mm. Yeah, it is really, really exhausting. It's like having ten children in one. And, and I always stress the fact it can also be incredibly rewarding because when they do reach a milestone of some kind... It's like they've won the Oscar. The, the, the lot, yes, exactly. I mean, the, you just appreciate it so much. And, of course, I don't know about Leo yet, but he will develop a very quirky sense of humour. Oh, and that's, <laughs> you get those moments of, like, hilarity oh, because, and an imposition. Yeah. Because they, autistic people have no filters, so they say whatever they're thinking, um, which means socially you and I sweat more than Donald Trump doing a Sudoku because you never know what they're going to say <laughs> and it can be really embarrassing. He's the only person in the world who can kind of embarrass me and make me get nervous, you know, because <laughs> I'm quite bold. But, um, but the humour, honestly, because we live in a world where people lie all the time. Advertisers lie, politicians lie. But to have someone who just tells the truth is kind of a rare commodity. I think we should set Leo and Jules up in a truth booth where people pay to come and be told what you know what's real. You know, does my bum look big in this? Well, yes, yes. It, it does. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Papa, you've got a belly. I do not. <laughs> All of that. So I think we have to learn to see the strengths of autistic people, not just constantly be putting them down or or judging them on neurotypical standards, because you just got to let them become their best autistic self. And my advice, and I and I've, I think I've already given this to you, is first of all, build up their self-esteem because they're all day they're told they're wrong, they're stupid, they're out of sync, and their self-esteem sinks down like lower than, I don't know, Britney Spears, Spears bikini line. Um, but I would also say you have to feed their um, obsessions because they're very obsessional people. Leo may not have found his obsession he yet. Has, yes. What is it? Um, dinosaurs. Well, great. Yeah. He probably become a famous... Is it a paleontologist? Pal- paleontologist. Whatever it is, feed it, nourish it, because it doesn't matter how obscure it is. Like all those mad scientists we now think of as, you know, kind of crazies but also brilliant, we're probably all on the autistic spectrum. So, um, you know, if it, it doesn't matter if it's moth wing fluctuations or igneous rock formations or, you know, Tibetan nose fluting, it doesn't matter. Feed it, feed it, feed it. Let them be obsessional. The National Autistic Society, how do they assist people and carers with the condition? What work do they do? Well, first of all, they connect parents. So they help parents, because you feel so alone when you're given this diagnosis. I mean, the A word, that's a diagnosis that drags you down into the dark, you know. And suddenly your child's become like a, a plant in a gloomy room and it's your job to kind of try and drag them into the light in some way. So it's incredibly isolating um, but being part, going to the National Autistic Society, then you meet other parents, you can have support groups, you can get educational information. It's just a kind of lifeline. So um, there's a lot of good autistic groups in Britain. There's also the uh, Ambitious About Autism, which also takes a positive view of autism, that it's not a, a weakness, it's, just, it's a, not just a difference, it can also be a strength. But the National Autistic Society has a, a big reach and I'd like to support them. Kathy, thank you so much for sharing your perspective of the world. 
from a vagina. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest opening night on radio. And also, you can see the one thing I don't eat are my words. <laughs> you know? You've been very kind to me. It's been lovely talking oh, to I you. Oh, I know I adore you. I know you I mean, do. I just like to have... Uh, my favourite recipe would be you naked on a bed of meringue. Oh, yum. Chocolate meringue. Yeah, well, look at those chocolate eyes of yours. You know I'm in love with you. I'm in love with you too. Darling, thank you so much. Pleasure. It's a pleasure, treasure. You heard Cathy's calls as the National Autistic Society in the United Kingdom. Australia doesn't have a National Autistic Society, but has many organisations for support, including Aspect Australia, Autism Awareness Australia, as well as each state and territory having their own autism association. And there is a National Autism Helpline, Autism Connect, on 1300 308 699. for listening to this episode of Plated Three Food Memories. We'd love it if you could tell your friends about it, write a review and share the love. In our next episode, I share a heartfelt conversation with the incredible brothers, Daniel and Luke Mancuso of Yayanik Store fame. Plated Three Food Memories is created in partnership with World Stories, produced and edited by Lauren McQuirter and the original score by Russell Torrance.